And as you are doing that, would you go ahead and grab your Bibles or your electronic device of choice that gives you access to the Scriptures and find your way to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 26 this morning. And once again, submit ourselves to what James has to say about what our Christian faith should look like, that it should look more uncivilized than it looks civilized. And so if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been walking through this journey together and kind of reminding you the the kind of the move towards the book of James for me came out of a conversation a number of months ago with a close friend who articulated to me that he pretty much had everything. Great job, success, money, good family, nice wife, goes to a good church, gives generously, and he looked at me and said, but I'm empty inside. He said, there's got to be something more. And we started talking about the reality of how our faith becomes something that is boring and easy and comfortable and predictable and controlled when it was never meant to be that way. And so as we hit the book of James again, we realize that James just kind of pulls all the frills away and he goes right after the core of what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's the same for today as we'll look at these verses. We'll talk about uncivilized motivation. In other words, what is internally inside of us that drives us to do the right things that we're supposed to do. James talks about that. And when we, when we walk through this morning, I want you to think in, in terms of three categories, you, where you kind of find yourself in terms of what we're going to talk about is faith and deeds or faith and works and how those two things marry together to form who we are in following Jesus. Now, all of us will fall into one of these categories. The first category of people that kind of in this, in this area is that I do good deeds or I do good things so that I will be saved. There is this belief inside me that if I'm a good enough person, then on that day, God will give me the thumbs up and I'll get in the door of heaven. So we are motivated through our life to be really good. Then there's the other group that does good deeds because they know that they already are saved, which means God has already welcomed me into his family. He has already given me the thumbs up and therefore I can't lose and so I live my life with compassion and care and love for other people, and I do what's right before the Lord. Now, there's another category that I think sometimes we fall into, which is probably the biggest category, not just in our church, but I think in the body of Christ. And that is that I believe that I'm saved, therefore I'm not motivated at all to do good deeds. Why? Because I don't have to earn anything, and therefore I don't have to do anything. I'm just saved. And you think, well, yeah, that's right, right? I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to do anything. But we have a belief system that says, I can simply believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and therefore I understand the gospel, and I'm saved, and that's all there is. I just do my time until I die or Jesus comes back, and then the pearly gates open wide to me. That's a good portion sometimes of of kind of cross-section of the church. And I believe that's the group of people that James is really targeting when we look at this passage together today. So let me read verses 14 through 26, and then we'll walk through them together. James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you, uh, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Thank you once again, James, for just giving it to us straight. It's really important for us to embrace what he's saying. Now, I know already if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time or if you've read through the scriptures, when you read James here, there's a little point of tension, a little rub that comes. And that, that is that when you read through Paul's writings in the New Testament, you hear over and over and over again this mantra that Paul gives, we are saved by faith alone. And then James comes along and says, oh, no, 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 wait a second. You're not saved by faith alone. It's in, it's in connection with your actions or your deeds. So are James and Paul like in disagreement with each other? Are, is the Bible contradicting itself? No, absolutely. The Bible's not contradicting. The reason why is if you read through Paul's writings, knowing his context... Paul was a Pharisee who lived by the law. As far as the good deeds thing, Paul had it down. He had it down. And so when you read through Paul's writings, almost every single time he's referencing good deeds, he's referencing pre-conversion good works. He's saying, listen, if you are before you come to faith in Christ, if you're trying to be a good person, forget about it. It's not going to work. That's why Paul says, listen, all my good deeds, all the things I ever did in my life that were good, I consider them rubbish or trash. Because what's most important is Jesus. Whereas James comes along, and his, he, what he's dealing with here, he's not dealing with pre-conversion, he's dealing with post-conversion works. He's saying, you have been saved, and because you have been saved, the evidence of that in your life is that you will do the right thing. You will have good deeds or good works. So they're not actually in opposition to each other. They're actually in complete com- in unity with each other, one talking about good works before salvation, the other after salvation. And so for most, most of us, what James has to say more applies to our lives because if we've come to faith in Christ, this is where James is speaking to us, and that's why we need to listen to this today. So look at verses 15 and 16. I want to walk through that, that big group of us that we fall into where, where we have this faith that we believe that we're saved and how that can actually look like. That we, there can be things that are true of us or that we have as a part of us that even though we believe that we're saved, maybe what James is saying is we haven't quite experienced the fullness of our salvation yet. So the first thing is that we can have a faith that this is what it looks like, that actually believes we're saved, and we can actually be indifferent towards the poor. He says 15 and 16, he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of them says, go, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, and then we do nothing about it. What James is saying is, listen, that, that doesn't work. He said that's, that's descriptive of a faith that believes it says, if saved, therefore it is held irresponsible, not responsible at all for doing anything for anybody else around them. Now, if you read through the, the scriptures, read through the Old Testament, you realize that that wasn't even true of Israel. Israel felt this com, com, they were compelled to care for the people. And throughout the Old Testament, you'll see there was three major categories of people who found themselves in poverty. Uh, one was the orphan. The orphan had no inheritance. So the orphan, apart from somebody coming along, had no future. A widow was also another category. A widow had no resource, no one to supply for her to care for her. So there had to be a community of people that would do that. And then you had the foreigner, and the foreigner had no land. 
They had no claim to any point of property and because they, they were a person that was without a land. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. And so even today we see that there are people, what, what the Bible describes that are in poverty are people who don't have the ability to meet the needs that they have in their life. Therefore, as somebody who follows Jesus, that becomes our responsibility to help in that. Now, one of the things that's so important is, James, what we talk about this to understand is that so many times our default, and we'll talk a little bit more about this a little bit in just a few minutes, but in helping the poor is that we think through, how can I just give them some money or give them something, and that will make their lives better? You and I have to take a step back and realize the core of poverty is not monetary. Poverty is not a monetary issue. If poverty were just a monetary issue, poverty would be already taken care of. Why? Because we're probably one of the most generous nations in the history of the world, both locally and globally, and have given billions upon billions of dollars to end poverty globally. How are we doing? We're making a, maybe a little dent, but poverty is still a huge issue globally and even in our own country. Why is that? Because poverty at its core is not monetary. Poverty is relational. It's a relational issue. It comes from a fractured relationship in our lives with other people, with God, with ourselves, and with creation. It's the system that we're in that's broken. Adam and Eve experienced poverty. In fact, that's why we have to kind of get this understanding. Remember, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed, first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. The brokenness inside, the relational fracture that we have apart from God. And that's why we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit, about what does it really mean for us if we're followers of Jesus to actually care for the poor? What does that look like? So but let's look at the, the second thing in verse 17 and 18, that we can actually have a faith that we believe is true but doesn't really save us. We can actually have a conflict between belief and action. So James goes on and he explains in the same way he has faith by itself, it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. Someone will say, I have faith and then, then I have deeds and there's this battle. It's like, okay, it's which side do you fall on? And so what we're saying is that you and I can have this concept that as long as I believe correctly, I have the right doctrine, right theology, then I'm good. I got it down. I got the system down because therefore I believe so I am saved. And then we can go to the other extreme people fall into and say, as long as I do the right things, I'm always righteous, I'm always good, I'm always moral, I'm always doing the right things, then I am saved. But what James is saying is, no, both of these come together in a true faith, because what you believe over here actually influences what you do over here. And that means that if, if we're truly saved, we've experienced that, then what we believe about who Jesus is and what he's done in our life so compels us that we can't help from acting on our beliefs. It compels us to. There's an author named Bob Goff who wrote a book called Love Does. If you haven't ever heard, read that book or heard of Bob Goff, go Google him. He's amazing. He's one guy that actually practices what he preaches. He does what he says. And the whole concept of his book is really simple. Love is not just this warm, fuzzy feeling I feel towards other people. Love is something that compels me to action. Love does. In fact, he has a whole section in his book about how we in our culture have, we have marginalized relationships out of the picture. We get so busy with life that we don't even have time for people. We just are married to our, our calendars and our schedule and all the things that we're doing so people kind of get pushed to the side where he said that's so wrong. He goes, how can you love people if you can't even be with them? So he said for him, he, he's, he changes, he's a very spontaneous guy, but he changes the way he lives his life. He doesn't keep a calendar like that. 
In fact, he tries to be interrupted in life. He's, he welcomes interruption. Why? Because interruption means I'm encountering people. So much to, this, the, the, to the fact that when he was, they were just about to publish Love Does, he came to his publishers and he freaked them out completely. He said, you know, I really feel like I need to be accessible to people. I need to be interrupted. I need to practice what I preach. And so at the end of Love Does, you can get a copy of it, he has his personal cell phone number in the book. And he welcomes you to call anytime. And he will do his best to take your call. And if not, he will call you back. There are thousands upon thousands of copies, if not 100,000 copies of Love Doves across the country, across the world. With this guy, can you imagine putting your cell phone number in something that's going to get replicated thousands and thousands of times and saying, yeah, call me anytime. <laughs> Bob Goff's in a good way a little off. He doesn't actually have an office. You know what he says his office is? His office is a picnic table on, on Tom Sawyer's Island in Disneyland. Not kidding. He will take world leaders. He's also part of, he's a representative, even though he's from America. He's a representative for the Ugandan government as a consulate. And he actually has world meetings with world leaders at Disneyland at a picnic table on Tom Sawyer Island. Because he wants to be interrupted. He wants to be with people. And if we're truly saved, if we've truly experienced that, then what happens is what we believe compels us to act. So there isn't any conflict, but when we have a, a faith that we only believe and never take action on, we live in constant turmoil inside about what we believe and what we don't do in our lives. Then there's a third thing that James says about this kind of faith that is motivated to do nothing even though we believe we're saved. He says that you actually can have a proper belief system and still not experience the fullness of salvation. He says this in verse 19, You believe there is one God, good and this is what's scary. This is where James goes for it. Even the demons believe that. We should all be very offended by what James just said. Because this is what he's saying. He's saying if you have a faith that only believes but doesn't take action, then the demons have better theology than you do. That's, that's offensive. That demons have a better theology than we do. They understand more about God than we do. But for their reality, obviously, from what we can understand in Scripture, it is that, that they are fallen angels who are obviously dead set against God's purpose in the world. Yet, they have a good theology. They understand who God is. They've got that one down. And that means it's possible to actually have a right theology and never know Jesus. To have the right belief system, to have all the do's and don'ts and all the, the Scriptures down, and still never get to the culmination of our faith, which is Jesus. Listen to what John uh, and Jesus says in John 5, verses 39 and 40 to a group of people who fell into the same category. He says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You have the belief system. You got the, the manual down, which, by the way, just to, to kind of free us from this, the Bible was never meant to be a how-to manual for your life. The Bible is a narrative of God's story through human history to reconcile humanity back to him through Jesus. It is, it is a love letter to humanity. And when we take it as the, okay, I'm just going to study it as a textbook. I'm going to look at it as a manual. Then what happens, it's very easy for us to disengage from the reality that this manual came not as a book or document, but came in human flesh in Jesus to personify what the scriptures talked about. And the reason that's so important is because we can get so married to the rule book that we lose out on the whole point. 
I grew up on, the, on Brady Bunch, not the like, movie or the remake, the actual original Brady Bunch TV show. And when I was growing up, I watched every episode. And I remember one episode in particular I thought was hilarious is when, you know, there's Mike and Carol, their mom and dad, Brady. And so one episode, Mike decides to spend time with the girls and help them. Like, it was a Girl Scout badge and cooking they had to do. And then Carol's going to help out the boys practice baseball. So because Mike doesn't know anything about cooking and Carol doesn't know anything about baseball, what do they do? They get books and they start reading. And so Mike reads up on the recipe and how to cook and how to do this and everything. And then Carol gets a book on baseball and she reads through it and she memorizes it. And then they have their times with the kids. And it's a train wreck. Mike's in the kitchen trying to teach the girls how to cook. And all he can do is recite the rule book. And so he's reciting the rule book and he's not doing it right. And the recipe's getting messed up. He's making a mess of the kitchen. The girls are looking at him like, Dad, you really don't know what you're doing. But he's following the rule book and he's messing it up still because he can't see there's human beings in front of him. And then you have Carol out in the backyard. She's playing with the boys. And she stands at the plate, and she recites to them what the book told her how she should stand properly in, at the plate, ready to hit the ball. And as she describes it, she gets every part of her body in position according to the book and realizes she can't even stand up, and she falls over onto the ground. But she was following the rule book. And the reason that, that didn't work, and the reason it doesn't work for us today, is because when we lose sight of humanity... We lose out of reality, and that's why it's so beautiful that God didn't send his son as a book. He sent his son as a human being that fulfills the book called the Bible, and that's why we have to go back to him. We have to understand that we actually could have the perfect belief system and still miss it completely. The Pharisees had great theology, and they couldn't even recognize Jesus. Sometimes we're in danger of that as well. And then the fourth thing that James mentions is that we can actually have a faith that doesn't save us, that actually has a respect for God. Because he goes on in verse 19 after he says, you know, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that. Then he says, and they shudder. Demons have a fear of God. They have a respect of who God is. Why? Because they know who he is. And so even the demons have this respect or this fear but it doesn't change their circumstance. They still are on the opposite team. They're still opposed to what God wants to do, even though they have a respect or fear of who he is. Which means what James is saying is you can have a faith that you think will save you that is based on this fact that you think that you, since you have an acknowledgement of who God is, you have a fear of who he is, you even, may even know who Jesus is and still not get it. Now, none of us would want to admit that that would be true. You know Recent poll and this wide estimate, but they said between 71% and as high as 83% of Americans say they are Christian. That's a pretty crazy statistic, isn't it? So on the low end, seven out of every 10 Americans say that they are Christian. Or on the high end, eight out of every 10. That's pretty good, isn't it? Does that look to be true in our culture? No. Sometimes does it even look to be true in the church? Sometimes not. So why is that important for us? Because I think that what happens is we have a culture, and even sometimes in the church, where we can acknowledge who God is. We can even know who Jesus is, but we don't know him personally. And I think this is kind of my theory. I think in our culture, we've become very good in America at acknowledging there is a God. But we like to keep him very generic. Because it's easy to acknowledge a generic God 
but it's really hard to encounter a personal one. And that's the thing that we, that's the tension we live in. So many people, in fact, even in our culture today, so many people will say, you know, by the way, it's amazing how Jesus' popularity is very high while the church's is very low, and I think one of the reasons for that is because most people in our culture don't really know Jesus. Because if you follow Jesus, you know that the more you follow him, the more you're going to get offended by him in a good way. Because he will challenge you and he'll push you on areas of your life and he'll call you out of yourself and he'll, he'll save you and transform you as he says, listen, your life is not your own anymore. You were crucified with me and you no longer, longer live. I'm living through you. And when you start to hear those things, you're like, whoa, wait a second. I liked you when you were generic. I don't need you to get all specific with me. But are we in danger of being the people who embrace a generic God that I have respect for, just like the demons do, but we never get to the point where we let God define himself and the way God defines himself is through Jesus. That's what God looks like. That's what God acts like. That's who God is. And the more we know him, the more he's going to challenge us. And he's going to confront our lives. Now, shifting to the faith that, what faith looks like when I really am saved. Genuine faith that's real from the inside out. What does it look like on the outside? James describes it. Going back again to verse 15. It includes care for the poor but it includes care for the poor in a little bit of a different context. So James says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So we're supposed to respond to the physical needs of people. But there's a bigger question. When we talk about poverty, there's a bigger question to engage. When we want to help people who are in poverty, do we really want to help them or do we want to help ourselves to feel good? I read an article a number of weeks ago and somebody said, and I can't remember the name of the, the, the author, but really very good. He said, the moment that we stop serving our own securities is the moment we can, sit, we can start serving the world. And if we're honest with ourselves, and let me just tell you my own personal journey, what I had to go through, is that we have a, a mentality about caring for the poor sometimes, which is what I want to call the soup kitchen mentality, which is, I'll care for the poor, but I want it to be transactional, which means, and that's why Betty Eske was here first service. You could ask her. She's the director at Samaritan Center. Every Thanksgiving and Christmas time, Everybody wants to care for the poor. We want to go do a Thanksgiving meal. We want to stand in the line with a cute little apron that goes around and serve the food to the homeless as they go through. Please, I'm not trying to offend anybody, okay? But then when it's over, we take off our our apron, we set it down, and then we go on 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 our own life, living the way we want to live. That costs us nothing. In fact, that's why so many politicians like to do it. Why? Because it's a great photo op. The problem is, Betty will tell you, when come, come January, where are all the people that wanted to care for the homeless, care for people in poverty? They're gone until what, next November or December. But when we follow Jesus, that becomes our conviction, our responsibility year-round. And that's why there has to be a transition to understand, again, if poverty is not a monetary issue, it's a relational one, guess what the answer to poverty is? It's relationship. That means for us to alleviate poverty means that we actually have to know poverty. We have to allow poverty to invade our lives. And that's why overall, and, and, and this is true for our city, you know what our city needs? The Samaritan Center is wonderful. We support the Samaritan Center. There are at least 15 different organizations and churches that feed people who need food. Those are wonderful things. But one of the things that our city lacks is the relational context for a long-term recovery for people in poverty. 
people who are addicted, people who are on the streets because of circumstances, that not only do they need food and clothing, they need a care place called a shelter that they can come in off the street and someone can get to know them, their story, their name, and then walk with them side by side as God begins to transform their lives. We don't have a comprehensive plan as the churches in in Simi Valley to do that. We need that, but it's costly because it isn't just, hey, this church can buy the property and this one can pay for this. It means all of us having to know somebody who's walking in poverty and then becoming our friend and becoming someone we walk alongside with. Because if poverty is a relational issue, then the answer to poverty is relationship. That means that we actually have to know people. Second thing that James says in verse 23 to 20, 21 to 23 is faith that actually saves us always will, is willing to sacrifice. So James references an amazing example from Abraham. I won't read the verses, but just thinking through Abraham's experience, Abraham and Sarah couldn't get pregnant. They prayed and they called out to God and, and for years until they were in their old age and finally Sarah gave birth to Isaac and God blessed them and you think, wow, then hap- they live happily ever after. Everything was wonderful until God comes along and messes the whole happily ever after and says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. Now, for most of us, because culturally we're not there, but for Isaac, for Abraham and Sarah, Isaac was their world. I mean, we have kids, you know how much you love your kid, but not only do they love their kid, Isaac represented their heritage, their lineage, their future, even beyond their own life. To have a firstborn son, they had what they were supposed to have, the dream they had waited for, they had longed for, the pain they had suffered through to finally get to that point. And then God says, listen, I want you to take the most important thing in your life and I want you to sacrifice it. When you read through the story, you never have Abraham scratching his head going, are you sure? Uh, You gave us Isaac, why are you wanting us to sacrifice him? That doesn't make any sense. It says that Abraham, what, because he chose to do the right thing, because he was obedient, because he was righteous, it was credited to him. God says, listen, because his faith in God allowed him to actually go to the place where he was actually going to sacrifice his son. Abraham was willing to sacrifice the most important thing in his life. And following Jesus means there will be, I guarantee, there will be multiple moments where God comes in and he challenges you and he says, it's time to sacrifice that. And it might be something really noble and really good, but God's saying, hey, it's time to let go of that because I need you to move forward. So about three years ago, as we were starting this journey, Kim and I and our kids, that led us to where we are right now, something happened in me that God exposed in me something that I didn't realize had become an idol to me, had become the most important thing to me. And that was my household, my home, my sanctuary, my escape from the world was our house. Me and Kim and Courtney and Jordan and nobody else. And I would, we have people over to our house all the time. We, were, we would be hospitable. There was always that time where the cl- doors would close. And I'll be honest, as a pastor, the pressures of pastoring, I leave them out at the front door and I just have me and my family in the safety of my home. And I loved that. And then God messed me up. Because then God started pushing Kim and I to, to talk about fostering. We had talked about it for a while. And I didn't realize that God had us on me on a collision course. And so we decided to do it, and I'll be honest with you. And my motives were, that'll be really cool. People will think I'm a really amazing person because we're going to foster. That's where my motives were. So we go through the training, 
and we're getting through all the process and we get trained and we get life scanned and we get our CPR certification. The county comes out, they go through, they tour our home, they give us the thumbs up, you are approved to be a foster family, you get the little certificate on, put up on the wall, and then the social worker calls. She goes, yeah, I have a little two-month-old boy that we'd like you to take and I'm going to bring him over to your house. And so I'm like, okay, this is exciting. And then as Kim and I are processing about this, I'm thinking, what did I get myself into? And then many of you know Noah and Tina, who are part of our church for a while. They moved to Virginia. Noah was our first foster baby. And social worker drives up in the driveway. Kim and I go out. She opens the door. And Kim was a little bit behind me. She probably would have reacted differently than me, but she was behind me. And so I'm like staring at Noah, and I'm looking at the social worker, and she goes, it's okay if you can touch him. You can pick him up. It's okay. I'm like, really? And then I picked him up, and I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm in a world of trouble. Because right in that moment on my driveway with Noah, inside of me, I realize that God is saying, yeah, you know that thing that you value so much, that time, that sanctuary, it's gone. Anybody ever had a two-month-old? You know what I'm talking about, right? Your life as you know it has come to an end. And it was true with Noah. Noah. And I remember multiple nights sitting there at 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning feeding Noah because he was fussy and not getting any sleep and realizing that God was doing something deep inside of me that was way beyond caring for Noah. And I remember the first few weeks was like, oh man, this is driving me crazy. And then I look at Noah and I say, thank you, Jesus, because you just went after one of the idols in my life that was keeping me from moving forward and opening the doors of my house and of my heart to give up my time for what you want to do. What is it that God is pushing in on your heart? What is it the sacrifice that God's saying, listen, this is the one thing, and if you can't let it go, there is no other thing. You can't get beyond it. You have to be willing to let it go. Two more things before we conclude. The faith that truly saves us looks like the third thing is courageous risk. Because James goes on and he gives another, another killer example from the Old Testament. He says, Rahab, and I love how James puts it. He says, not, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? Can you imagine prostitute and righteousness in the same sentence? James is saying she was considered righteous. Why? Because when the spies came along, she hid them. And then sent them on a different direction away from those who were pursuing them. Rahab, a prostitute, was the key to Israel's entry into Jericho, which was the key into the promised land that God gave them. God chose to hinge all of Israel's history on a prostitute who was righteous because of the faith that she had inside her allowed her to take action on behalf of God's people. Just think about that. God using a prostitute to do what? To risk everything? To risk her life. She was a traitor to Jericho. She was the one that opened the door to let them in, to give them access so they could see the city, to know what was going on. She covered them. She protected them. She put her life on the line for Israel. She risked everything. And the Bible says she was considered righteous. Why? Because her faith and her works came together. Now in our lives, are we willing to be courageous? Are we willing to risk everything? That's the question. 
Now, I know this, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but you'll have to just bear with me. I, just for a moment, I want you just to think in recent times for you. Has anyone, anyone ever come to you and in reference to your following Jesus, in reference to you, your faith, said to you, well, that's a little extreme. You're a little extreme in your, your passion for following Jesus. Or maybe someone came to you and accused you of being too risky to realize that's a little bit too risky. I know we're supposed to like, you know, lay down our cross and follow Jesus, you know, but, but that's, that's a little over the top. Anybody ever accused you of being radical? You just need to pipe down. You're just a little too excited. You're just a little overzealous. You need to back off a little bit. You, don't, you shouldn't be that way. You're going to make people feel uncomfortable. You ever been accused of being dangerous? Either you guys get this every day or you're just looking at me with blank stares like, no, it's never happened to me. Why is it that maybe we don't have those kinds of things? Is it because we don't risk enough? Risk is a part of following Jesus. Risk is how God works. And it's, by the way, it's not necessarily calculated risk. It's not risk management. Because in following Jesus, there will be times when he calls you out from where you are, and he doesn't give you the end of the story. He doesn't give you the guarantee. He doesn't say, okay, if you leap, I will catch you. No, he just says leap. And you have to trust God will do something. So a lot of the women in our church you walked through last year, you went through Chasing Daylight, which is a book written by Erwin McManus, which is based on the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer when they went to take on the Philistines. And if you recall this amazing story, you got Jonathan and his armor bearer, and between the two of them, they had one sword. And then you have the leader of Israel, which is Saul, his dad, the king, which is hanging out over a tree, under a tree doing the spiritual thing. He's praying, waiting on the Lord. And what does Jonathan do? Jonathan looks at his armor bearer, and sees the Philistine army, and he says to his armor bearer, basically, let's go pick a fight. But this is how he says it. Let's go over to the Philistines, and he says this phrase, perhaps the Lord will move on our behalf. Now, if you're Jonathan's armor bearer, and you got one sword between the two of you, and you hear perhaps, you're like, forget it, I'm going hanging out with Saul under the tree. That sounds safer to me. What was Jonathan saying? I got no guarantees. I know what God is doing in us, I know that the Philistines stand in the way of God's purpose. But I don't know if he's going to show up, but I know the only way we find out is if we get on the battlefield. So these two crazies, these two radicals, these two extremists, these two idiots climb up to the, to the Philistines with one sword and it says that they took out between 20 and 30 of them in the first acre as they encountered the Philistines. And this is a crazy thing. So these two guys risk it all. They discover God's on their side. God is at work. And then Saul, when he hears the rumblings of the Philistines turning on each other, he's like, hmm, sounds like a good time to charge. What risk in Saul, right? Where do you land? Are you Jonathan or are you Saul? You wait till the outcome is already determined, then you jump on board, or you say, you know what, perhaps God's going to be in this. So you leap. That's what James is talking about. Rahab had no guarantee that her life would survive. She risked everything, and Israel's history, our history, hinges on her faith and her willing t- willingness to be courageous. And then let me close with this. The last thing that James highlights is that a faith that's truly, where we're truly saved has a spiritual life. He says, as the body, in verse 26, without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He says this analogy. 
Our soul, our spirit is inside of us, therefore it gives life to our physical body. The same thing is true, that if our faith is truly alive inside of us, then on the outside we will see evidence of that in our actions, in our deeds. But if we aren't alive inside, then there will be no evidence on the outside that that's true. That means that there's this spiritual dimension to the reality of what James is talking about that we can't miss. But, and this is where I I, want to conclude. One of the dangers in this series, one of the dangers of the book of James, and one of the dangers of the message this morning is that we walk away feeling this way. Pardon my French. This is what we, I really suck. I just, I don't match up. I'm not doing enough good works. I, I, I feel guilty. I feel condemned. I feel horrible. I want to just, I need to go do something better. Doesn't that sound wonderful? It's the way you walk away from this. If we walk away from the encounter with the scriptures and with this message and with this series, with that mentality, then we've missed the point. Here's the point. Let's back up a little bit. James is talking to a group of people who have come to faith in Jesus. And coming to faith in Jesus means they understand something that we have a tendency to forget. That God loves them. James has a foundation that sometimes we divorce from when we talk about this. And I know I'm guilty of this. The only way we live a life where our faith and our deeds come together and show that we're actually saved is if we understand one simple and profound fact. God loved us first. God didn't say, do some good deeds and work really hard and get your act together and then I'll love you. In fact, Romans says what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we even gave God a thought, before we ever did anything right, God was already working on our behalf. One of the things that we forget so often, and this is where we get off base in our faith, is that we have one primary identity in Jesus. You can be a mother, a father, a teacher, a firefighter, a police officer, a pastor, a brother, a sister, all those things, but you only have one primary identity in Jesus, and that is you are a child of God. Not by your doing, but by God's initiation in your life. By God reaching down through Jesus to bring you into his family because why? He loved us first. And when we get that fact down, the whole works, faith works thing, isn't even an issue anymore. Because we are so transformed from the inside out because God loves us and we live in that every day of our life that it just literally comes out of us. The beauty in understanding God's love is that I don't have to do anything, but I get to do everything God calls me to. Why? Because he loves me and I can't lose. Isn't that beautiful to realize that I don't have to do anything to impress God because he's already given me the thumbs up because of what Jesus did. He's already given me his approval. He's already accepted me. He's already determined that for all of eternity. So he says, now you're freed from your past. You're freed from the good works that would try to save you to do what I called you to do because you don't have all that history anymore that's going to keep you from moving forward. Why? Because God loves us. Listen to what 1 John says, 4 verses 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God but whom they have not seen. And he who has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And I know I'm guilty of this. When I read that, I always lean really heavy on verses 20 and 21, but I forget verse 19. Verses 20 and 21 mean nothing unless you start at verse 19. 
We love why? Because he first loved us. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I, I don't want you to, to look up here. I want you just to focus on what God is saying to you today. I'm going to read um, some lyrics to a song in a moment. I want you just to hear it in your mind and your heart. I'm not going to sing it to you because you would run for the doors. That's, I'm just going to read it. Some of you know the song. It's called Good, Good Father. And I want you to hear it because it speaks of God's love and our identity in that love. The first verse says, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night. You tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. The second verse goes on, I've seen many searching for answers far and wide. But I know we're all searching for answers only you provide because you know just what we need before we say a word. And then the chorus goes, you are a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. I want you to let those words settle in. Your identity is a child loved by God. Everything else is secondary. Just with your eyes closed, I want to just mention two two kind of categories of people that you maybe find yourself today, and then I'll pray and we'll be done for this morning or for today. You know in your history somewhere you, you made a commitment to Jesus. You, you, you chose to follow him. You, you prayed a certain prayer or you understood something and so you said, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. But as you've lived out your faith, you realize looking at it, you, you, you come to this place now where you hear these words and you feel against a sense of guilt or shame or condemnation because you feel like I just don't see it in my life. I don't see the works coming out. I don't see that, that drive or that conviction. This morning, God wants you to know that he's not trying to motivate you by guilt, shame, or condemnation. He's wanting to transform you from the inside out by his love for you. And so what I, I believe God says to that group of people, to you today, is go back to the foundation of my love. Realize that you don't have to earn my favor. Realize that you can never be good enough so you don't have to try to be good enough, but realize my love, if it's fully embraced, my love, if it fully penetrates you to the core of who you are, will so transform you that good works will be the byproduct of my love. It will be the evidence that's there. So right now, God is wanting you to once again embrace the reality that what demonstrates the ultimate act of God's love for you is that Jesus gave his life on the cross to take the weight of your sin off of you so that you could be reconciled back to God. God loves you that much that he would not and could not stand eternity apart from you. So he made a way through his son to be with you because he loves you. Then maybe you're in the second group today, and that is that you have 
in your life, even though maybe you've been around church and you've even maybe read the Bible and you maybe even kind of done the Christian thing, but in your heart, you know, there's never been that time, that place, that moment where you've said, you know what, I am, I am all in. I am going to fully follow Jesus. I'm going to turn from my old thinking and my own way of life and embrace this God of love who is Jesus, who helps me to understand the value that I have in my life. And because of the value he's placed on me, I can give my whole life to him. If you've never done that before, then I'm going to ask you in a moment when I pray, I'm going to ask you to pray. And all prayer is is this conversation between you and God. You begin to talk about saying, I, I want that. I want to, to experience that. I want to be transformed by love. I want my life to be different. But I know that only comes through embracing you, Jesus. So, Lord, as we come to conclusion today, I ask for each one of us, whether we come to this thinking that somehow what's going to change us and make us do good works is somehow we feel guilt or shame or condemnation. Lord, I pray that you would erase that with the depth of your love for us. This helps us to see our value, what you've placed on us. You've placed the highest value on us. And in seeing that, Lord, then what happens is just like Bob Goff's title, Love Does. Then we start to do because we know that we're loved. And then the others, Lord, if, they have, if there are here, some here that have never come to that place where they want to make the commitment to follow you, then today would be that day, Lord. Give them the courage to step forward into the new life that you have for them as they turn away from the old life that they used to have. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Thank you for the words that James wrote so that we can learn what faith looks like. In your name, amen.